brought to you by the UW-Madison Political Science Department. Hello and welcome back to 1050 Bascom. In this episode, we are joined by Professor David Cannon to discuss the results of the Iowa caucuses and the New Hampshire primary. We hope you enjoy. Professor Cannon, thanks so much for joining us. Great to be with you. Yeah, to start off, we just saw uh, the New Hampshire primary results uh, come in Tuesday. It went pretty quickly. And yeah, Trump, obviously we know Trump ended up winning that and Haley didn't pull out um, the upset victory she might have been hoping for. Um, And, you know, that kind of brings up the broader theme of Trump challenger campaigns kind of fizzling out in these first few elections. And so I just want to ask you, what went wrong with the Trump challenger campaigns? Well, I think the main problem that that certainly Nikki Haley had, but DeSantis and all the other, you know, uh, first-tier challengers had is that they weren't able to make the case to Republican voters of why not to vote for Donald Trump. They were very reluctant to attack Donald Trump directly. They would have some kind of soft attacks, like you know, whenever he wouldn't show up for a debate, they would call attention to that. But nothing that you know went after him for any of the the big things. Certainly, didn't talk about January 6th. Maybe some you know, alluding to the false claims about the 2020 election, but nothing very hard hitting. Chris Christie was the only one who who tried that. And of course he fizzled out, you know, pretty, pretty quickly. So that was the fundamental problem the Republican challengers had is that they needed to make a case to Republican voters of why to vote for them without ticking off that really strong base of Donald Trump supporters who are you know, likely to stick with him through anything. And so for the, the, the basic you know, Trump supporter, the question is, you know, why vote for Trump light when I can vote for the real thing? And so that's, that's the, the basic reason that so many of these, uh, all of the challengers uh, up to this point, I mean, Haley still is in it, but we'll talk more about that in a few minutes, but why they all fizzled. And do you think there's anybody who could have actually pulled out um, a defeat of Trump in the primaries? I mean, I know folks were kind of high on DeSantis, uh, maybe in 2022, rolling into 2023. What happened there? Yeah, DeSantis was certainly seen as the strongest challenger coming into the beginning of the election. He'd had, you know, good fundraising success. He'd had, you you know, turned Florida from being a very competitive purple state into a pretty solid red state, you know, was making the argument that, you know, we could, you know, have Florida be kind of the conservative blueprint for policy change at the national level. And for a conservative Republican, this seemed like, oh, okay, so this is maybe more of a, a serious kind of policy person compared to Trump and has all the same kind of conservative credentials that Trump has. And so DeSantis really did appear to be a pretty attractive challenger from a conservative Republican perspective. But he turned out to be just a terrible campaigner. Like he's just terrible on the on the campaign trail. You have to go back to, I don't know, maybe Al Gore to find a, a, you know, a similar, you know, just wooden you know, candidate that just didn't connect with voters like at all. I mean, even Hillary Clinton looked like a good campaigner compared to, to Ron DeSantis. I mean, so it, yeah, really, I think that was, it just came down to that, that he had a pretty good message. Again, he had that same problem that I mentioned 
you know, at the at the top of not going after Donald Trump and trying to walk that tightrope of, you know, how do I convince those Trump voters to come to me? And he was very reluctant to ever take on Trump directly. And so that is something I think had he maybe come out, you know, with a a stronger attack on Trump paired with his kind of policy alternative. And if he was a more effective campaigner, I mean, he, he could have been the one that kind of turned things around, but he just didn't uh, either have the the attack campaign against Trump and, again, being a terrible campaigner. And, and on that kind of note of fizzling candidates, do you think New Hampshire was the last stand for the anti-Trump faction of the Republican Party? Nikki Haley has people have been calling on her to suspend her campaign. She doesn't sound like she wants to or is going to. But realistically, now that we're after New Hampshire, it's not looking very good. No, you're right. I mean, it certainly it was one of her best chances. If you look at the, the states, certainly even probably a better chance than carrying her home state in South Carolina, which is up next, because the Republican base in South Carolina is much more conservative than in New Hampshire, certainly. Independent voters have always played a really significant role in New Hampshire, and she did quite well among independents. She did get uh, two-thirds of the vote uh, among people who weren't registered Republicans. So, you know, she, she did well with that, that group of voters, but there just weren't enough of them to put her over the top, and she ended up losing by 11 points. And so, yeah, I think you'd have to say that New Hampshire probably was the best shot in this first, you know, third anyway of the Republican primaries for a challenger to, to be able to actually win a state. And when you look, you know, down the calendar a bit further, you have Super Tuesday coming up on March 5th, fairly soon after South Carolina. And you've got, I think, like 14, 15 states going on, on March 5th. And at that point, I think it's pretty likely that Trump will, you know, pretty much wrap up the nomination, um, you know, if not in delegate count, at least in, you know, momentum if he would, you know, carry all of, of those states. Now, I think there's one additional reason where Nikki Haley may hang on to the very end and take it through all the way to the convention, which is, let's say that the, and we'll talk more about the court cases in a few minutes, but let's say that the, the documents case, uh, you know, goes to trial, uh, come up with a, a guilty verdict, a very, you know, so strong verdict against Trump, and he's a, you know, a convicted felon then for, uh, you know, basically not securing our, our state secrets. Um, that's a serious enough kind of case against Trump that is potential the convention, at the convention, the delegates could get cold feet and say, hey, you know, we really don't want to go down this road. And then Haley would be positioned as the only remaining candidate at that point to be able to potentially, you know, claim the nomination. So that's the only reason I can see that she would want to stay in the race at this point. Uh, I think there's close to zero chance she could win a majority of the delegates. I mean, that's just not going to happen. Um, but with that, you know, one caveat of we still don't know what the legal landscape's going to look like, that might be the reason she hangs in. And given that Haley is the only remaining challenger to Trump at this point and that we're unsure about her ability to wrap up those next couple of races, are we headed for another Biden-Trump rematch? Yeah, I would say that's close to 100% sure. Yeah, I mean, the only way that doesn't happen would be, you know, some kind of serious health issue for either Biden or Trump. If they just have something that would not allow them to continue, uh, that would, I think, be the only thing that would prevent that at this point. What does that mean for the U.S.? Um, is this something we've seen before in U.S. presidential history? So I would say, sort of answering that question in two parts, one in the, the, the most obvious historical uh, level and the other in terms more of the nature of this campaign. So I'd say in the first, it's not distinctive in that uh, Donald Trump is hoping to be the second Grover Cleveland. You know, because Grover Cleveland is our only president to serve non-consecutive terms. 
He was elected president in 1884, defeated by Benjamin Harrison in 1888, comes back in a rematch in 1892, and, and defeats Benjamin Harrison. So uh, Trump is hoping to be that Grover Cleveland that can you know, both be a defeated incumbent and come back and beat the same person that beat him. Now, an interesting historical twist on that is that Joe Biden could actually end up being the Benjamin Harrison one way, which is that Cleveland actually won the popular vote in 88 and lost Electoral College to, to Harrison. And, and it's if Trump wins in 2024, in November, I think it's quite likely that Biden will win the popular vote and Trump would win the Electoral College. I mean, it's pretty inconceivable to me that Trump would win the popular vote. I just don't see that happening. Uh, but it's possible, given how close so many states were in 2020, you know, it only takes, you know, uh, what, like, 30,000 votes flipping in, in three states, and Trump would have been president, you know, re-elected president. And so I think it is quite possible we could see that happening in 2024. And so in that sense, uh, Biden would be the grower of Cleveland in, in uh, winning the popular vote but losing Electoral College. So that's the way that it's not entirely distinctive. We could have a repeat of that pair of, of elections. But in another way, it is clearly distinctive, and that is all of Trump's legal problems. Um, the fact that you know, 91 felony counts, six different cases going on right now, seven if you count the 14th Amendment cases that are, are gonna be before the Supreme Court. Um, and this, we've never seen anything like close to this. In fact, any article you read uh, about Trump's legal problems usually starts with uh, the lead sentence of, in an unprecedented blah, 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 you know, like, yeah, this really has never happened before. And so, so yes, that, that's really very distinctive. Um, another aspect of this campaign, I think, that is at least pretty unusual is, at least at this point, it's really not at all a policy-based campaign for Trump. It's based on uh, sort of revenge and retribution. Like he's still, he cannot get over the 2020 election. And in every stump speech, he mentions about how the election was stolen from him and, and he's gonna you know, uh, be out there to fight against the, the people who have been you know, unfair to him. And has been very clear about like, his plan for like, going after the people who he perceived to have you know, gone after him. Um, in fact, right after his uh, victory speech in New Hampshire, he said, I don't tend to get mad, I get even. And so this is, this is what it's about, you know, retribution. And that's also quite unusual for a presidential campaign to, to have that be the focus of a, of a campaign. That's um, so Taylor Swift of him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, okay, let's, let's talk about those court cases for a second because there are a lot of them and they're fairly complex. And obviously we don't have to get into every single bit of each court case here, but could you give us a quick overview of what the legal challenges against Trump are? Right, so we have, so you can put them into sort of at least two different categories. Those that are mostly wrapped up already and are just at the stage of, of talking about damages. And those are the two civil cases. The, the New York case is brought against a lot of his um, financial dealings and in his business where he was overstating the value of his properties. And that already has had a, a guilty verdict against him. Um, and right now, that civil suit is in the process of deciding how big the penalties will be. Uh, it could be, you know, as much, they're asking for as much as $370 million in, in fines, potentially banning him from practicing uh, business in New York, the state of New York at all. So you'd have to like move all of his you know, uh, businesses out of New York. So that's the first one. Uh, the second civil case also is the Gene Carroll uh, defamation case that's ongoing. We already had a verdict of that case back in May where the jury concluded that 
Donald Trump did sexually assault her um, and that it was ordered at that point to uh, pay $5 million in, in damages. But there's a, a second defamation case related to his uh, continuing to defame her you know, after um, the, 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 these uh, complaints came out. And so that, in fact, is before a jury right now to decide what those damages would be. So those are the two you know, pretty straightforward ones. You know, then you have the, the documents case having to do with taking all the classified documents down to Mar-a-Lago um, in violation of federal law. And this is a, a quite serious case, I think, that could potentially be one that's the most damaging to Trump because I think it's the most straightforward in a lot of ways that you know pretty clearly he did do these things. We've got you know stuff on videotape of you know the boxes of documents stashed in his bathroom and you know so it's you know it's pretty clear that this did happen and so the only question is like how serious you know what the verdict will be and if it will I doubt it will involve any jail time, but it's possible it could. I mean it definitely is, is possible and that goes to trial uh, at the end of May and so we. You know, should have some resolution to that. You know, before you know the end of the summer, um, and then you have the Georgia case, um, his attempt to overturn the election in, in Georgia, um, where you have the famous phone call where he asks for them, you know, to find the eleven thousand votes. Um, that one is supposed to go to trial in August, but there are huge complications in that one that have come out just in the last few weeks with um, Fannie Willis of the DA uh, has been alleged to be involved with a prosecutor in a relationship that constitutes a, you know, um, a conflict of interest and a judge is hearing right now whether to remove her from the case. There have been calls for her to step aside in the case to allow it to go ahead because if she doesn't, almost certainly that will not come to trial uh, before the election because it'll just get you know, postponed uh, you know, for quite a while. That again is a very serious case and the grand jury indictments were based on really solid evidence. And so that one could potentially be damaging too, but given the difficulty going on right now with the controversy involving uh, the DA, that one probably won't uh, come to fruition before the election. Um, then you have another fairly minor case that again, I don't think will produce much, and that's the hush money case with Stormy Daniels. You remember back to 2020 election, the porn star that, you know, alleged having this relationship with Trump and, and was paid hush money to get her to not talk before the election. Um, that one was, uh, that's supposed to go to trial also uh, fairly soon in the next couple of months, but I think that's the least serious of all these and not likely to lead to any uh, significant charges uh, against him. Um, and then, you, of course, you have the January 6th case. And this one also is a fairly complicated case uh, involving you know, Trump's involvement in the effort to interfere with the counting of the Electoral College votes in Congress. Um, and uh, so that's supposed to also go to trial within the next month. Um, there, right now, the Trump attorneys are trying to appeal to the Supreme Court on executive privilege grounds that he shouldn't be able to, to be charged in this, this case. And so the Supreme Court may bail out Trump on that. My guess is they'll let it go to trial, but again, we're, we're just not sure how that will resolve. And then finally, the Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, the Insurrection Clause of the Constitution, where the state of Colorado, their Supreme Court, the Secretary of State in Maine, have both ruled that Trump cannot be on the ballot because of that Insurrection Clause that was originally targeted, of course, at the, the Confederate soldiers after the Civil War to make sure they couldn't hold a federal office. And there are a whole range of, of legal questions in terms of is Trump an insurrectionist? Are his actions on January 6th protected by the First Amendment? Is he protected by uh, 
executive immunity, um, and potentially does Section 3 not even apply to the president? Because it doesn't mention the president by name. Uh, most constitutional scholars think that it does apply to the president, but some people argue it doesn't. So my guess, and that's right now before the Supreme Court, and they're going to have oral arguments on that uh, coming up um, on February 8th. Uh, they'll hear oral arguments, and so we should at least have some sense how the court's going to go there. My guess is they will find some way to not allow Trump to be removed from the ballot. Um, my, if I had to make a guess, I would say probably on the grounds that he's not an insurrectionist, according to their definition. Uh, because someone who's like a strict constructionist textualist like, like Gorsuch would have a very hard time saying that if you say that Donald Trump is an insurrectionist, well, then he clearly you know, can't be allowed to... Uh, to run for office, you know, because it, it says that right in the Constitution. So I think that's probably the best bet for them to get their way out of that. So if you add all this up, I mean, there are you know, two or three cases that really are quite significant. And if you look at the exit polling, um, uh, even among people who voted for Trump in Iowa and New Hampshire, 10% of them said that they would not vote for Donald Trump if he had been convicted, if he is convicted of a felony. And so if you lose anything close to 10% of the vote among your Trump supporters, I mean, there's no way he can win. Um, and that's where we go back to that scenario I mentioned at the convention where maybe the delegates kind of get cold feet at that point and say, you know, we need to go a different direction. So I'd say that's still kind of a long shot at this point, but it's certainly a possibility. So very, very long answer to a set of uh, difficult questions. <laughs> Yeah. And now switching over to look at Joe Biden and his campaign. Um, Biden is also facing some strong headwinds coming into 2024, particularly from his own base. Do you buy that his struggles with youth voters will stick? Well, that's, of course, it's hard to say um, whether or not the the problems he's having with young voters and, and with his left base in general, I would say. You know, he certainly is having uh, trouble not just with young voters, but if you look at his support among you know uh, black voters and Hispanic voters, you know support there is is down you know fairly substantially as as well. And overall, his aggregate support approval is only 39.4 percent right now, which um, is close to his all-time low of his presidency, which was 37 percent back in July of, of 2022. And, and so any time a president's you know, under 40%, uh, that's you know, clearly a sign that he's going to have a, a tough uh, path to, to re-election. And so, so yes, he, he definitely is in some trouble with his, his base. Whether or not those you know, troubles continue and whether young voters especially will um, you know, not, not vote for Biden uh, the way that they, they did four years ago, I think that that remains to be seen. And when you look at some of the you know, things that Trump was able to do in his first two years, um, where you know, they had you know, razor thin margins, um, they were still able to accomplish quite a bit on things that are important to young voters, like especially the Inflation Reduction Act, which is an oddly named bill because almost all of it was money going to clean energy. So $369 billion going to alternative energy and clean energy, by far the biggest uh, effort we've ever had on, on spending on, on fighting climate change. Um, things like the Criminal Justice Reform Act, um, the uh, uh, pardoning all uh, people who had federal offenses based on marijuana possession, first president to ever do that, the student debt relief that you know, has been uh, you know, uh, narrowed by the courts, and there have been several legal challenges where he wasn't able to have as much of that as he had originally planned, but there's been a fair amount of student debt relief as well. 
um, reauthorization of the Violence Against Women Act, um, the Respect for Marriage Act, which was a, another really important thing, um, where protecting same-sex marriage, where there was some fear that Supreme Court, you know, given some recent decisions, might overturn those court cases. And so they codified that into law as, as well. So I think when young voters look at the, at least the young voters who supported Joe Biden initially, obviously there's still plenty of Republican young voters, um, but overall the young voters were, were uh, very much overwhelmingly Democratic uh, and four, four years ago, I think that those young voters, when looking at the record, will still end up voting for Joe Biden as opposed to, to Donald Trump. In fact, the last class I taught before I retired was the presidency uh, last spring. And at the beginning of class, I always have a survey the very first day of class, just asking the students if you're, you know, Democratic, Republicans, all, you know, done anonymously, uh, and liberal, conservative, who, and then like, who are you going to support for president? In that class of, what do we have, like, 85 people, 90 people, something like that, there was not a single person who was going to vote for Donald Trump. And about this is a class that was about a third Republican. Not one person said they were going to vote for Donald Trump. Now, there weren't a whole lot of Biden. You know, they weren't as enthusiastic about Biden either, but a way, way more than there, there were for Trump. And so I think for a lot of young voters, the, the problem might be for Biden, not that they'll vote for Trump, uh, the ones that used to, had supported him, but in fact will end up not voting at all. I mean, I think that is certainly a, a potential uh, danger. Because we have seen youth voting trending up in the last several election cycles, and it's possible that will plateau or even go down. Before we move on, is it an like is it a question of enthusiasm for Biden as he's running up to 2024 in terms of like getting his base to turn out? Yeah, yeah, no, that's a really good question. I think that's yeah, I think you're exactly right that you know that you. That's going to turn out is, is going to be harder this time around, I think, for the, the Biden team than it was in, in 2020. Um, I think you'll still see, though, anytime Donald Trump's on, on the ballot, it really does drive turnout. We saw a record turnout in New Hampshire, for example, highest turnout ever in, in that primary, in the history of the New Hampshire primary. And so, and even in the midterm elections, in 2022, um, while it wasn't quite as high as 2018 when Trump was, was president, you know, Trump was kind of still on the ballot in 2022. Even if he wasn't president anymore, he was still you know, fi figuring very prominently in a lot of those congressional races. So, so I think it will, you're right that there's an enthusiasm problem for the Biden supporters, but I think having Trump as the opponent is going to motivate a lot of voters, not so much as a pro-Biden vote, but as an anti-Trump vote. Uh, in fact, when you look at the Haley supporters in New Hampshire, it was something like 40% of the Haley voters said they weren't so much voting for Nikki Haley as they were voting for uh, against Donald Trump. And they said they were going to vote for Joe Biden. Uh, and so that's, if anything close to that ends up happening in, in uh, the general election, and you get enough of those moderate Republicans who you know, don't want to vote for Trump. You know, then Biden, even if he has that enthusiasm problem, I think still would end up being able to beat Trump. I also think it's interesting to mention another sect of voters, which is likely independent or maybe even people who lean Republican slightly, but are abortion voters uh, yeah. and care very deeply about this election. And I think that a lot of them might be more attracted to Nikki Haley's message um, if they're leaning towards that side. But, you know, if she's going to drop out, that could be another potential gain for Biden in that area. And I also think this is particularly interesting because uh, Kamala Harris was here on 
Monday in Wisconsin and like stood in front of this big banner that just said like trust women and she talked about abortion rights in that speech so I'm wondering if maybe they're kind of anticipating that and trying to grab some of those voters now because they know that they care about that issue specifically. Yeah absolutely that's a really good one to bring up in terms of the you know the how the campaign could play out in the fall and and no doubt democrats across the board and certainly biden campaign are going to be talking about abortion a lot because if you look at the polling on this it's probably the single issue right now that both voters care about a lot and the democrats have a huge advantage on um, whereas something like climate change you know a lot of voters care about it but you know, it's not something that's as close to the top of the list as say, abortion would be for a lot of voters. And there, you know, Democrats have an advantage there as well. But it's abortion is the one where you definitely are going to see the Biden team and Democrats kind of across the board really emphasizing abortion and appealing to those independent and more moderate Republicans is part of that strategy for sure. You talked about Biden delivering on what I think are fair to call wins for a lot of um, what youth voters are looking for, especially on climate, which we know was a popular issue amongst youth voters. If that's the case, at, why are we not hearing him message that hmm. so much? Or just in general, what is going on with his messaging? We have that same thing with the economy where, you know, whether you like him or not, it does seem that we have pulled off reducing inflation without Triggering, triggering a recession, which kind of defies some economic logic. I'm not an economist. It, it I don't does. want to dive too much no, into right. that. But it's yeah. definitely not something that we would expect. Right. So this has all been done under Biden's tenure. Why is he having so many troubles messaging on the economy and other issues? Right. No, it's a, it's a really good question. And it's the one that if I had to answer that, I would be like running the Biden campaign because like <laughs> it's just like nobody really can figure out why he's not getting more traction. Because you know, the list of issues I ticked off before are the ones that I thought sort of appealed most to young voters. But if you look at the other list of accomplishments, and remember, this is in the first two years, almost all of it, because you know, once the Republicans took control of the House, you know, the, everything got ground to a halt. And they weren't able to get anything more done. But in addition to those things we already mentioned, things like the the trillion dollar infrastructure bill. I mean, Donald Trump talked about infrastructure for four years and they never passed anything. And Biden comes in and his first year gets the infrastructure bill passed with bipartisan support to rebuild our, our highways and bridges and things that have been neglected for, for decades. The first gun safety law in, in decades was was passed. Uh, the the CHIPS Act on you know getting more semiconductors you know built in this country. We're so dependent on especially Taiwan, but um, other countries for our semiconductors that are so critical for every part of our economy. The $1.9 trillion COVID relief bill. And then the economy that you mentioned um, that, you know, second uh, highest GDP growth since LBJ. Um, I was surprised to see that Jimmy Carter actually had the highest. I would not have, have guessed that. <laughs> but, um, and, but, and the lowest unemployment rate in 60 years. And so not to mention the, the soft landing after inflation coming down to not have the recession. So it is really a head scratcher to try to figure out why Joe Biden isn't getting more recognition and support you know, for what you could argue is probably the most successful two years on domestic policy of any president since LBJ, since the Great Society programs. And again, with tiny margins in, in Congress, whereas LBJ had huge margins in both the House and Senate. And so when you think about it in those terms, it's even more remarkable. So is it just messaging? I think it partly is. 
um, you know, while Biden is no Ron DeSantis in terms of being like a really ineffective campaigner, Biden's also no Barack Obama um, in terms of, you know, his ability to connect with voters. And uh, so I think, you know, part of it certainly is on Biden for his inability to connect with voters on on many of these issues. But it does seem like they could be doing a better job of sort of laying all of this out and and showing, you know, some of the the really strong legislative successes they have had. I suppose being young and spry, the campaign trail is a little harder. (laughs) It it is. Indeed, it is. And then, okay, looking at that historically, is there a habit or a precedent in the U.S. of citizens blaming the current president for all the current problems in the nation? Well, yeah, that definitely is true. That, that is something that is not uh, unique to Joe Biden, is that we, we tend to, to blame presidents for things going wrong. Um, but, but with Joe Biden, again, it seems to me it's a little bit different in that you have a situation where the objective record is pretty strong. Is actually, I would argue, you know, really strong. And so it's not even so much blaming him for problems, just not giving him credit for success. And that's something that I think is probably largely explained by something we've seen predating Joe Biden and even predating Donald Trump. And that's the increasing polarization in public opinion approval polls, but all kinds, any kind of polling that's based on partisan politics. I mean, back, going back even as recently as, you know, George Bush certainly started changing pretty much with Obama, but going back to George Bush, Bill Clinton, you would see as many as a third of the opposing party still approving of the president who was of the other party. Um, and you just don't see that anymore. It's like single digits, you know, low single digits in some cases. And so that, I think, is what makes it so hard for Joe Biden to get much traction and getting you know, uh, credit for his successes is that Republicans, even if you know, objectively say the economy is in good shape, they're not going to give Joe Biden credit for that, period, like just full stop. And same thing with when Trump was president. Democrats weren't giving Trump success, you know, credit for any of the successes he had with the economy. Um, and so that's just kind of the nature of the beast right now is that because public opinion is so polarized, it makes the job of an incumbent president so much harder because you're fighting over those few independent voters, basically. What about folks that are upset over his response to the Israel-Hamas conflict? There's obviously been a lot of criticism from progressives and especially younger progressives on the way he's responded, and they kind of see it as too pro-Israel. Right. Um, you know, are, is this going to have an impact on his 2024 returns, especially in states like Michigan and Minnesota, which I mean have higher percentages of um, Arabic populations that are voting for largely for Democrats? Yeah, it certainly could hurt, and especially with that, um, the more again left-leaning base of the party and, and young voters. Um, and it's something that I think Biden in the last week or two has been shifting a little bit more to the center on this. He's been more openly critical of Netanyahu and, and trying to put pressure on Netanyahu, not only for a ceasefire, but also to, uh, to stop some of the most aggressive parts of the, the campaign in Gaza. And so yeah, I think Biden is recognizing that they need more of a middle ground here. Um, whether or not it ends up hurting him in 2024 in the general election, it's a little too early to answer that for sure. One thing that might lessen the impact of that issue to some extent is that if anything, Donald Trump is stronger pro-Israel than, than Joe Biden is. I mean, he's very much on that side of, of this issue. So that kind of neutralizes the issue in terms of like a, just a head-to-head comparison anyway. 
Again, where it could have an impact, I think, is on your earlier point about the enthusiasm uh, problem is that, you know, some people on the left who are really annoyed with Joe Biden about Israel may end up just staying home and not voting or voting for a third party candidate or something. And so I think that's probably the bigger danger for, for Joe Biden on that issue. Yeah. And, and on that note, what do you want young voters, especially those who aren't thinking of voting or don't think it's worth it to know about the election and primaries as they right. approach here in 24? Yeah, so I think the, the big thing is just to keep on reminding yourself about the importance of voting, that even if you are disaffected with the, the, the system and you don't like the two candidates that you're forced to make a choice about in a, in a given election, you know, democracy depends on people participating and, and voting. And that especially in, in this election, when, you know, Donald Trump has, has been, you know, pretty open about some of his desires to weaken democratic institutions and to do things like, you know, seriously undermine our civil service, which is at the, the core of, you know, nonpartisan policy administration at the national level. He wants to inject politics into that in a serious way that would really change the way that our government works. Um, and just, you know, looking at you know, January 6th and the attempt to, you know, not allow uh, the results of a democratic election to go forward, you know, the stakes are really high in this election. And so it's, you know, some people make the argument even that democracy itself is on the ballot. And you've been hearing Joe Biden you know, make that argument you know, more over you know, the recent weeks. And I think that that's you know, not much of an overstatement. I mean, I think it's, it's definitely true that this is a very high stakes election. And in any election, it's important that, that people vote, but I think especially in, in 2024. And so that would be the main message I would want to get out to young voters is that even if you are disillusioned and even if you really don't like the, the choices you're facing, it's still important to go out and vote for the candidate that you think at least has, has done something that's closer to what your preferences would be. And I know we talked about the court cases, but just as we wrap this up, is there anything else that you want to talk about that we haven't mentioned yet that you think we should talk about today? Yeah, I think we did a really good job of, of covering all of the, the, the basic issues. And, and again, I guess the, the main thing I would want to emphasize just as the, the closing idea is, is this idea of the importance of, of participating in electoral politics as well. I know that for some younger voters, especially that say are really interested in some given issue, they get involved in you know grassroots campaigns and organizations, which is really important. But it still is you have to have people voting as well, and I think that that would be the the other you know the closing thing I'd like to to mention. So we'd like to end the podcast on a fun note. And so today we'd like to ask about uh, everyone's favorite diva down and uh, long shot Donald Trump VP pick. Um, oh, oh, oh my goodness! And campaign um, and campaign watch party crasher George Santos. Um, so without having to pay money on Cameo to ask George Santos a question, if you could ask him something, what would it be? So I had not thought about the possibility of George Santos as VP. That is a truly horrifying thought. <laughs> oh dear. Um, so I, George Santos is yeah. He's such a uh, such a 
enigma and just uh, sort of hard to to figure out. I mean, there are a lot of things I would would like to ask him. I guess the big question I would like to ask him is like, how did you think you would get away with all of this stuff? Like, do you think we're that stupid? Um, and so, yeah, I'd like to see what he said about that. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, um, <laughs> Professor Cannon, um, thanks so much for joining us and providing your insights, um, both on Biden and Trump's campaigns as we head toward a 2024 uh, election that looks like it might be a rematch. So Indeed. All right. Good to be with you. Yeah, thanks. Right. Thank you so right. much. Take care.